and welcome to Conversations on Karate. I'm Sue. I'm Greg. Hello. We are recording this separately. We've got for you two episodes with Hanshi Patrick McCarthy coming up. We were expecting about an hour of Hanshi's time. We ended up getting about three and a half hours of Hanshi's time, which is very kind of him. So we've split it up into two two parts for you. Uh, part one, what, what do we talk about, Sue? Is... In part one, we went through... Uh, what didn't we talk about? Yeah, what he, didn't we talk about? He told us about um, how he very first came to be involved in karate. In fact, he could name the date. Yes. Which that's is extraordinary. Wait, yeah. yeah. We won't spoil it, but that's, a, that's a, I'd never heard that story before. <laughs> it's unbelievable to think such a... Basically, a mistake resulted yeah. in one, one of the, the greatest modern-day because there is so yeah that's a that's a funny story he talks to us about jesse Ancamp and how he came to know him and oliver yeah uh he was involved in internet forums when they very first came yeah. out yes. <laughs> so dealing a... with the, the very first keyboard warriors that's a that's a brilliant story so and uh, and of course the most the fascinating part of it about form over function function um, over form and the the yes the art form versus functionality that kind of thing just a mm-hmm. whole conversation around that yeah. which was brilliant take on that and that was in part one yes should we tell them about part two as well we should can. we make them wait for part make two them wait. <laughs> part two so, is where I I get cut off unfortunately we did lose you at the end you lost of me part towards two. the end so that's why if you can't hear me <laughs> that's why. Yeah, that's a, that was a great shame that we lost you at the end of it. But uh, yes, and I inadvertently called Hanshi something else. <gasps> How dare you? I know, I know. <laughs> it was, um, we basically asked Hanshi about two questions and he talked for over three hours. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was just Hanshi just talking, unfiltered what he was thinking. It's completely fascinating, wasn't it? It really was, yeah. We, we will hopefully do more with Hanshi as well. So enjoy. Yeah, we'll shut up and let you listen to part one. Hello and welcome to Conversations on Karate. I'm Sue. I'm Greg and we have today a very special guest. Uh, People probably already know who it is because we've probably put it in the title so we won't uh, shroud it in mystery but we have Hanshi Patrick McCarthy with us all the way from LA. How are you Hanshi? Good. Well, I was going to say good morning. I'm looking outside. It's a, it's a daytime here, but I guess you guys are in the evening. I was say, what is it, seven or eight o'clock in the evening? No, it's about half past three in the afternoon. We're all right. Yeah. But we'll go with your time. Good morning. Yeah, morning. <laughs> yes. Uh, good morning from the City of Angels. I'm, I'm, I hope that you guys are fine. Thanks for, thanks for the opportunity to be on your show. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. How did, you, how did you find out about me? Uh, well, I mean, I, I mean, I trained with you at John Burke's place a few years ago. Um, but I mean, obviously, I've been in karate for as long as I have. You, you hear your name mentioned all over the place. So yeah, I've been in many ways. I'm sure, yes. In only good ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, yes, yeah, so I've been, I've been well aware of your, your stuff for a long time. Um, I don't know. So, Sue's recently become more aware the higher Sue progresses up the ranks. So, um, yeah, no. Do you, do you guys train with John, a sense of John Burke as well, or no? No, you've, you've never met him, have you, Sue? I've, I've trained with him a couple of times, but no, he's a bit further away 
from from us. He's probably about an hour. Maybe yeah, you guys are in Somerset, hour. right? Say again. You're in Somerset, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. He's he's down in Newton Abbott, which is probably yeah, yeah, yeah. probably about a couple hours away from from us. Yeah, <laughs> the bunkai guy. Am I right? That's John's I'm going to, to see him again. I'm not sure what the date is, but I, I go to Europe uh, every year for yeah. a couple of months at a time. And John, I'm going to be at his dojo in on that on this forthcoming trip. Oh, cool. what this year? Look, yeah, I, I'm go I'm going to say that it's either May or June. Oh, okay, brilliant. Oh, we'll try and we'll try and. Um, the weather's warm. Yeah, yeah <laughs> hopefully, yeah. <laughs> England in May, it's no, no guarantees there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely no guarantee. Yeah, oh, we'll definitely try and get one. Which dojo and what style of karate are you guys practicing? Uh, so so we, we train at Street Shotokan Karate um, in Street Somerset um, under Joe Andrews. He's been on with us a couple of times. Um, yeah, so we are, we are predominantly Shotokan, but we... Um, we're we're in the kind of that transitionary process of moving towards a more progressive uh, Yeah, 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 uh, uh, yeah. More more of an applied style rather than your kind of traditional kihon kata kumite mm -hmm. approach that that's, that you see. Mm. So I'm just trying to adjust my computer. Keeps sliding down there. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. So I mean. There's a few things I wanted to add because I mean, while we've got you on, I'm going to make the most of it. So <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to fly some stuff at you. Uh, but no, is it a is it just an audio or are we doing the a video as well? Is it? It would just be the audio from this, yeah. You had asked me earlier if uh, if we if Skype was okay, and I, I haven't actually used Skype for. Oh, maybe even a couple of years, you know, with the technology that changes so rapidly. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, as you know, I've, I've just immigrated from Australia to here. And as you know, my accent is Canadian, but uh, um, I, I had a wonderfully fast internet connection in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, fiber optic, I was one of the uh, first streets in our city to get fiber optic. And... Uh, uh, and, and they hadn't bottled it up yet, hadn't choked it off, you know, to get 20 megabytes or 30 megabits. Yeah, yeah. I was getting the full 100 megabit uh, download, and I was like, oh, wow, I feel so good. It's so fast. And when I came here to L.A., and I'm, I'm, in a, I'm, in, I'm really right in the very heart of the city here, uh, and in this, in this condominium building that I'm living in, they have a fiber optic. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll take the fiber optic then. That's well, $50 a month. I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. I said, and I said, but I, I want fast internet, you know, and I said, oh, well, well, you know, you have to pay extra for that. And I said, oh, uh, okay. How much is the extra? Well, it's $20 more for, I said, that's 70 bucks a month, by the way, which was still $30 cheaper than it was in Australia, by the way. And, uh, I said, uh, well, it better be fast for that price. And he goes, oh, it's a thousand megabits per second. And I went, excuse me? He says, and I said, no, you mean, you mean like, you mean like a hundred, he goes, oh, no, no, no. He said, he said, our slow speed is 300 megabits per second. I went, I'll just do the slow speed, thanks, you know? And uh, wow, I'm so impressed at how fast the technology is. 
But in the building, there's a, there's we have a, also for guests who come. There's this automatic, uh, uh, I guess, you know, Wi-Fi, if you will. Yeah. That all guests can use when they come to the building, and it's a hundred megabits per second, and it's for free. And I and I didn't realize that at the time of purchasing my my service. So anyway. Yeah, I mean, yeah. ours, ours isn't even hundred. I know something about that. <laughs> um, so, what, one of the things I wanted to to ask is, you're, I, I say you're you're quite unique in, in you're a traditional martial artist. That's that, as we were saying before, you've you've delved into like the early MMA and and different arts, but you've still kind of maintained that traditional view and traditional roots. Do you know what I mean? Um, the first thing I'm going to do is tell my wife what you just said so that she can I, I love I always wanted to get her to think that I was unique as well but it doesn't work <laughs> I can't get her to believe that you know so. we'll, we'll send you the sound bite so you can you can keep it <laughs> you can use it as a ringtone I do have a I do have a pretty interesting background when I come to think about it um, I, you know I was just I just did an interview the other day for a, a magazine company here in the United States so I was kind of fresh in my mind about, you know, this pathway that I've been on for many years. And I, I was thinking back and I went, my God, I said, geez, I, I started back in the mid-60s. thinking, I don't even, I don't feel that old, you know, but I look back and I'm like, God, that's like more than 50 years, you know. But my, my children aren't even that old, you know. I, and, you know, you know, every... All boys, you know, at some point in their life, like to have a man cave, you know, in their house. And, this is my man cave. I can go there and hang out, you know. And now I don't have it now because, you know, I'm, I, we moved out of a big house in Australia into a, a condominium here in Los Angeles. But I used to have my little garage, you know, with all my all my magazine covers and photos with all famous yeah. people. And I, you know, I go in there the odd time, I have a nice single malt house. A smoke of a cigar or something, lay back and say, "Yes, I'm really, I'm really a somebody," you know. And <laughs> when my kids were really young, I remember my my son, you know, he must have been like seven or something. He goes, hey, "Dad, Dad, who's that guy?" I said, "What guy?" Son? He goes, "On the covers of the magazines." I said, "It's me." And and my son looked at me. And he kind of he looked up and he looked down and he looked at me and he said, "What happened, Dad?" <laughs> Yes, I studied, uh, I started out with judo and, uh, oh, you know, actually something. I just, you know, when I turned on my computer this morning, I got a message from an old friend of mine in Canada and he, he still lives in Canada and uh, he just sent me a, a notice of uh, an obituary notice that my, our very first teacher died yesterday so i um that was my first piece of information this morning sure. and we're, we're, we're thinking right now about back to the beginning when i first started my yeah. first year, my first teacher was adrian gomes from uh, a little town up in canada who was a university student at the time and uh yes yeah, so uh condolences to the the gomes family and yeah, absolutely my apologies. I I have a habit of interrupting uh, the whole of a conversation. Please, you're more than welcome to. <laughs> Wish we, I think people would rather hear you talk than us on this one. So, but yeah. So, so you started in judo. When when did you first get into kind of karate? 
it's fascinating. Uh, and I just went through this the other day in a magazine article. Uh, I can tell you exactly what it was. Uh, it was uh, in the second week of September 1964. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, um, that's when we start school here in, uh, in North America. And, uh, of course, I was grew up in Canada. And uh, so when we got to school uh, in our auditorium for our assembly, as we were, you know, getting started that, that uh, for the first semester, uh, I remember two things very clearly. Uh, one was that uh, we had a, a singer, uh, you know, we all gathered around the auditorium and, the, and this uh, 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 guy and, and a girl sat and played music for us. I would find out later that the uh, the girl was a, a singer by the name of Buffy St. Marie, who became a very, very famous uh, Canadian singer, a pop singer. And uh, we saw uh, a movie was played uh, for us there in the auditorium. Uh, it, was, um, it was called uh, uh, The Judoka. And it was uh, a national film board documentary on a guy named uh, Doug Rogers. Doug had been a uh, was a pilot for Air Canada, but he'd uh, uh, studied judo uh, for much of his life at that time. Very passionate about it. Went to Japan for six weeks and wound up staying for six years and and trained other famous names you would have heard of Kimura, Maeda, those people uh, who have some uh, some also some history in South America. And uh, he. Um, he won the Canadian Championships and the, and the, and the, became a world champion. And, and they had followed him to the Olympic Games uh, in Tokyo in 1964. And he won everything. He won all, all the way through the preliminaries and into the semifinals. And then in the finals, he was fighting for the gold medal. And he uh, came up against a guy named Anton Gitting, who was just from across the ditch from you guys. He was from the Netherlands. And... Um, uh, that was a battle between those two guys, and Gasek won the gold medal, and Doug Rogers had won the silver medal. But I mean, can you imagine? I'm a I'm a kid. I'm like nine years old in 1964, and uh, I'm turning ten that year, and I'm watching this. I just, I just, wow! That's what I'm gonna do. I can't wait. To, Mom, Mom, take me to the dojo. I was the first term. I learned where the dojo. And sure enough, we went to the dojo, and 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 just only being there a few weeks, uh, I came back. From, and by the way, we so we moved from this the the, the home dojo uh, for the judo club in those days was on a street called King Street, and the classes were held upstairs over a store, you know. And uh, but he'd also had a secondary, a smaller location at the YMCA, and. Um, so I remember going to the YMCA for our first class, uh, you know, maybe a few months after I'd started training. And I just showed up at the wrong time. Uh, you know, kid going to the YMCA, town, far from my home, and, and I had my little Dion and the, and the judo Joe waiting to train. And, and these, uh, which I would find out later, were uh, university-level students came in and started training them. And I just joined in with the, with the group, and uh, they were happy to have me. And I mean, this is the 60s, you know. And I was going, wow, this is fascinating. And I like this class quite a bit because there's no break balls and nobody's throwing me around. And 
And, you know, I was, I was pretty happy about that. And then just as the class was finishing, I noticed uh, the guys who I normally train with were coming in, in the door. And, I went, oh. and I remember they saying, hey, Pat, what are you doing at the karate class? You, you know, are you not taking judo anymore? And that was how I discovered karate, by the way. So. <laughs> Can you imagine if you never, if, if you turned up at the right time, the, things might be very, very good. I'll tell you, there's a, there are, I did a project many, many years ago. I did a project of, about, uh, you know, uh, instrumental moments in your life. You know, you know, you made a decision or decided not to make a decision and yeah. how that have effect on the future uh, direction of your life and your lifestyle. And I thought, you know, it's a, that's a really good question. You know, who really knows? But look, it's been a fascinating journey. I've, I'm, I've never, I never regretted a moment of it. It's been, you know, I, the joke in my family for many, many years was, you know, you know, I, I have a sister who's a professional and, 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 and two brothers who are professionals and, and, you know, my mom and dad and, and uh, you know, my mom was like, when are you going to get a job, Patrick? You know, I said, oh, well, pretty soon, mom, you know, I can remember uh, I started teaching, uh, I started teaching in 1973 and I started teaching professionally in 1974. And uh, I remember in 1973 being asked to teach uh, you know, I'm gathering as it were in, in those days, and it was a <clears throat> at a weekend tour, a weekend tournament, um, and the evening before on the Friday night, we'd all gathered at the place, and, and the guy said, "Oh yeah, hey, Pat, can you want really, to show some stuff?" You know, and oh yeah, sure, you know. Anyway, we a bunch of us who were sleeping at the dojo had kind of a kind of an open style class, and, and uh, I remember the guy putting twenty bucks in my pocket. And I go, "Whoa, twenty bucks." Pretty good. Jeez, could you imagine if I could do this all the time? Be twenty bucks every time I do it. I was wow. Twenty bucks back in those days was you know, kind of a good, good amount of money for, a, yeah. for an afternoon session type of thing. And and I went, oh, I, could, I, I hope I can keep doing this. I never really want to work if I can do this. You know, this is fantastic. You know, coming together with like-minded people, beating the hell out of each other. It's great. <laughs> great way to make money. You know, and my kids used to say, I. Uh, yeah, yeah, my dad doesn't really have time for a job. You know, he's too busy with his hobby all the time, you know. <laughs> it's the right way to do it, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's been fascinating, so. Yeah, you and, yeah, yeah, surely. And, you know, of course, as a kid, uh, uh, and, 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 of course, you know, and I grew up uh, when I left my little hometown, St. John of Brunswick, Rockwood Court, guys, yeah. Uh, I moved out to really a metropolis, you know, uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which I, I think I think the, uh, the combined population of Toronto these days is about 8 million people. So, mm-hmm. you know, you think, yeah, I'm coming from a little town of 50,000 people, you know, it was, a, yeah. it was a mecca in those days. And I remember going, I go to the dojo, the training stuff to take the bus down to Warden Station and and then Warden Station, I could get the subway and take the subway downtown. And then, uh, and then uh, I'd, uh, I could either take the bus over to where the dojo was or I could walk through Chinatown. Oh, you know, I, I'd never met any Asian people when I was a kid, you know. Oh, Asian, Chinese, Japanese, well, they're so mysterious, you know. So, you know, walking through across Dundas Street, which was basically Chinatown in those days, you know, the sights, the sounds, the smell, the girls. I mean, it was fantastic. I, I loved it. It was very alluring. And, and between the subway stop at Dundas Young, 
and over to where I was going, just on the other side of Spadina, there were uh, several clubs. And there was, I remember there was just around the corner there from the Sumsing restaurant in uh, in Chinatown on Haggerman Street was the Chingmo Association, Chingmo, you know, and uh, Jimmy Lauren Jack uh, 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 teaching that kind of an offshoot of Hungar. And friends who I met there, I'm still friends with today, by the way. Uh, and Robin Young, for example, is, is uh, one of the leading ones. Another one of the guys uh, uh, became the feature in a book called um, Angry White Pajamas. Who was very few people know. Yeah, very few people know that he was actually a kung fu stylist in the beginning. Oh, okay. Anyway, and then of course a little further down the street was the Canadian Karate Kung Fu Association upstairs with David Chong, and they kind of fused uh, Hungar Kung Fu with uh, uh, a Karate and, and and made something out of it, which was a big deal in those days. And then on the other side of the street, across the street from Spadina, was the Hong Lak Kung Fu Club, which is basically the oldest uh, a group. They taught. Uh, Hong Sing, Cholifat, Do Pai, and, uh, and uh, there were also some Tai Chi people there as well. So, so there was no shortage uh, of martial arts uh, uh, clubs, and uh, the community was very large in those days. And everybody kind of interacted with each other in those days. Uh, um, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a so-called open-door policy, but if you, if you knew people there, you were more than welcome to, to go and train. I, I, I can gradually came away from the club that I was supposed to be training at uh, to take up Chinese Kung Fu. And actually, when I started out as a teacher, a few people know that these days, I actually started out teaching Chinese Kung Fu, you know, so I was, <laughs> I'll, I'll see, some of my students will say, Sensei, you were back in the day, you used to be a Kung Fu teacher. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I did that. One of my heroes, by the way, back in the day was a, a really tiny little guy, not quite five feet tall who was known as the Monkey King in Hong Kong. His name was Chan Sao Chong, Chan Sao Chong. And he practiced a style, very, very unusual style of Kung Fu called Dai Si which means the monkey in the axe style. And, and, you know, we're talking about people passing away. Uh, he just passed away a couple of days ago. And uh, uh, I, you know, being here in Los Angeles is another mecca of martial arts everything is here by the way yeah i went over to a place called the uh, martial art history museum um i, I actually was over there a few months ago actually before christmas and i met uh, the curators another uh, martial art master also a monkey style name is michael matsuda and uh you know we became like instant friends you know and talked all night long about stuff and uh, you know this stuff that brings us all together and and, uh, and I said, oh, my God. And he was, yeah, I, did, I said, I didn't know that you were like, uh, you know, monkey style completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And la, la, la. I said, oh, you know, I know, uh, I know, uh, I had the pleasure of meeting a very famous Kung Fu master. And he mentioned some name. I said, no, 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 no. No, his name is Chen Sao Chong. He goes, oh, my God. You know Chen Sao Chong? I said, yes. Uh, you know, well, you know, uh, he should take great pride in, in, in trying to imitate his movements, you know, and, Back in the day, you know, he, he, he did the movies back in the day and stuff like that. He was on the covers of all the old, we call it Sun Mohab, the, the new martial hero magazine from Hong Kong. And, and uh, so he go, oh, my God, he said, I'd, I'd love to have something from him for our museum, you know. And by the way, in the museum, it's a, a remarkable place, you know. He, he has, a, you know, in, encased in glass, you know, like a, 
like if you went to a museum and you saw, may I say, uh, say for example, a, a military uh, exhibition, you might yeah. see behind in the glass case uh, mannequins in uniforms that belong to the French or the Nazis or something like that. So he has that with uh, you know some famous martial art people and things like that. <laughs> Alvis Presley's gi, you know, and uh, and I thought, oh yeah. I said, I said, well, actually, I told him. And, you know, I'm not sure if you know, but he, he immigrated to Canada some years ago. And if you like, uh, I can contact him. And uh, a very dear friend of mine, uh, Ken Lowe, and, you know, we go back more than 40 years ourselves, is was the head of the uh, Western Canadian Chinese Council Association. And uh, a nice guy has lots of contacts. So I called Ken, and Ken put us in touch with uh, Chan Sao Jong, and he had a, a long conversation with him about, would you know, would you like to contribute something to the Martial Art History Museum? It would be a great honor for them, and it would be, you know, good for you to, you know, have your, you know, the, your legacy live on, so to speak, in a museum. You know, it's, an, it's an, a kind of a nice uh, feather in the cap, so to speak. Yeah. Said, yeah, so, you know, he sent me down one of his, uh, you know, uh, one of his uniforms and, uh, you know, some photographs, signed and stuff like that. And I called Michael and I said, look, we got it, you know, and I'm going to, he's over in Burbank, which is the next suburb over. So I said, you know, I'll get over there and I'll uh, drop it off next week or something like that. And and then, you know, uh, I have uh, some friends of mine who, who come into Los Angeles from time to time. And one of them is uh, Grandmaster Chuck Merriman, is a good group master uh, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. He's coming uh, next week. And I thought, oh, if you want... If you want to wait till next week, I'll bring it over next week with uh, Master Merriman. Oh, yeah. Master Merriman's in our Hall of Fame. We know him very well, blah, blah, blah. And so I said, okay, so I, I'm, uh, I'm on the, uh, I'm on the uh, you know, my desk day before yesterday, and uh, I get this email from uh, my friend in Vancouver. He goes, you'll never guess Chance Al Jones just died. And I'm oh, my God, they're dropping like flies, you know what I mean? And he goes, yeah, he said, so I, I called Michael Madsen and I said, geez, I'm really sorry to tell you, you know, uh, Grandmaster's dead. And he goes, oh, my God. He said, you, do you have a uniform? I said, that's right here. He said, oh, my God. He said, he said, that might very well be the last thing he's ever given away. And this guy's a lineage-based uh, practitioner from the same style, although he uh, he's not part of that person's group. I said, and he said, he said, guard that uniform with your life. He said, <laughs> So next week we're going to go over to the Martial Art History Museum, make the presentation. He's going to put it up. So we'll to honor him. Anyway, I'm jumping on a horse and, and going in seven different directions. No, 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 it's good. It's a, you can't yeah, get it all the time. So I look like I'm actually a <laughs> going over to Kung Fu. I've just I've just finished watching Jesse's series that he's done, and I, and I really liked it. Jesse, yeah, 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 Jesse. Yeah, I thought Great, it was really good. Yeah, you know, I, I've known. Uh, I've literally known him since he was a child, you know. Uh, his dad used to be uh, our representative in Sweden for many, many years. So, you know, I, in those days, I used to travel out. I was still, uh, you know, in Japan. I used to travel out to Europe a couple times a year. And, of course, Sweden was always on the on the roster. And so the joke was, oh, do I know, do I know Jesse? Of course, he used to sleep in his bed, not with him in it. <laughs> but, you know, Jesse and his younger brother, Oliver, yeah. and his mom, Sue's laughing. Well, I mean, you know, the, 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 in the, the apartments in Stockholm, you know, actually, they, they were in a place called Tabby, were not terribly big. So they used to put the kids in another room. 
and I sleep in their room, you know, and, uh, but these kids are super talented kids. I mean, even, even as children, I mean, they were like winning tournaments and playing, you know, music, guitars and very, very, uh, sports minded. And, 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 you know, uh, you know, they said that re real knowledge comes from experience, you know, not, not necessarily academia. And, uh, and you know, certainly that's the case. I mean, uh, they ran that dojo uh, called the Combat Academy in Tabula yeah. for, for a while. That's, that's a, they came from, they, those kids came from a martial art family. You know, Sila, Sila Mkan, who's their mom, I mean, you know, she, when I met her, she was already like a fifth down in Shodyu Karate uh, with uh, Tomiyama uh, sensei, uh, who actually, uh, I think he's, man, I think Tomiyama, when he came from Japan, he, he, I think he's up around Nottingham or Nottinghamshire or somewhere up around there. And, uh, She's a Qigong teacher and a, and a, and a, and a, and a you know, a, uh, some type of physiotherapist, you know, uh, with, uh, 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 I don't know what it's called, uh, like kind of like shiatsu type thing, you know. So, yeah. I mean, the, and everybody and his brother had taught at that door. All the famous uh, European and American martial arts instructors went through that. So these kids have been faced uh, with, uh, um, you know, outstanding instruction since childhood. And so it was very interesting to, uh, when when Jesse first started his uh, karate nerd movement, I said, you know, you know, what a remarkable concept, you know, I mean, this, he's so smart, you know. And yeah, he's, uh, done, he's done fantastically. I, I remember when he first launched his, his website and it's, it's crazy to see how, how far he's progressed. Well, very proud of him. You know, he's done, he's, done, he's done such a great job. You know, I I kind of always referred him as my surrogate student. You know, and uh, and uh, he, he he very polite to ask right from the very beginning. Do you mind if I, you know, I've got my whole sport and competitive thing going on over here, which is in no way connected to you. But he says, you know, you've been such a great uh, mentor and influence with regards to the historical, you know, philosophical, pedagogical part. Uh, can I, you know? Can I call upon your, uh, your expertise when I need it, or can I use the themes that you've used? And I went, come on. I mean, any historian will tell you, you know, once they know what it is they're studying, that there are, you know, there are things from a historical point of view that if you want to understand how uh, these these uh, Chinese and Asian fighting arts uh, were were brought together in the so-called melting pot of uh, Okinawa history. How, how the how the fusion happened, what forces affected the growth and direction, why the art is the way it is today, why why isn't it another way? You know, you have to look at its historical footsteps. You know, it leaves an imprint, and by understanding that, we better understand that which we don't understand, so to speak. And um, so he was, and he's followed to a T that 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 breadcrumb, you know, you know, yeah. dating back to the early. Uh, uh, introduction of Siamese boxing or what you would call Muay Thai today and, and certainly the Chinese arts and, and you know he, he's gone to Japan, he's gone to Okinawa he's gone to China, you know went to the Shaolin Temple went, you know, then went to Fuchen and then Yongchun and boom and I think uh, I, I haven't watched all of the things in, in depth but I've got to have a look at, at each one they come out every week and, and you know he'll uh, and we talk back and forth like this like we are now yeah which I said, well, you know, you've got to make sure in the end, Jesse, you've got to make sure that you look, you know, uh, the Bubishi, as you are, no doubt aware of this, you know, the, the 
Okinawa's historical book of knowledge that yeah. uh, links the Chinese with the Okinawan, you know. And it's, it's a clear footprint there, so this is where it's come from, you know, and, and Crane and Monkfist Boxing. But, you know, and, and of course, you know, the history of the Crane is you know, pretty well known. And, uh, and, you know, most people who wrote a Fuchin, there's, there's, no, there's no fewer than five uh, different interpretations of Crane, you know. And then there's even more, uh, you know, the Northern Crane, Lima Lam, all these other ones that people rarely even look at. But most of the karate stuff is from the southern part of Fujian, and, you know, they look at whooping crane, seeing crane, feeding crane, and so on. And, but, you know, the, the, the headquarters for them was Yongchun, for example. And uh, so he made, his, he made the trip there, and, and he said, you know what? I said, you're not going to find monk fist boxing, uh, which is uh, called uh, uh, Lohuan in Chinese. Uh, or Arha, somebody amongst people call Arha boxing. And you're not going to find it under that name. And I said, it, it, it took me the longest time to finally uh, learn that, uh, you know, back during the time of the, you know, the uh, very chaotic period in uh, in Chinese history toward the end of the Qing dynasty, late the late 1800s, very early turn of the century. You know, there's a sequence of events leading up to uh, up to the Boxers' Rebellion, where it wasn't, wasn't looking good for the martial art guys in those days. You know, guns were pretty hard to block the bullets, so to speak, you know. And, uh, and this gave rise to a lot of monks trying to evacuate. Uh, don't forget Chiang Kai-shek burned their last shell and tumbled to the ground in 1927, you know. So, so uh, one of these monks who had fled uh, and went to the south uh, uh, got... Uh, I guess taken in might be a, a word or uh, accepted by a local uh, incense shop. Um, and of course, you know, the, the incense shop, I mean, the, 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 te- the Buddhist temples of those days, they had to get their incense from somewhere, you know. And this was one of the shops that provided it. And that liaison or connection opened the door for this guy to get, let's call it sanctuary, if you will. And uh, so rather than, you know, create a lot of, uh, of unnecessary uh, Publicity, but yes, the Shaolin monk is teaching here. It's the, they just refer to uh, the art they're teaching as uh, uh, the guy over at the incense shop, you know, uh, incense shop martial arts, you know, incense shop kung fu, and, and that became known as incense shop boxing, so to speak. Yeah, uh, that became uh, you know one of the best kept secrets of all times, and you know we looked for many many years to discover where the heck is the monk boxing. In Fujian, we just can't find it. And lo and behold, it was always there under our nose. Uh, you know, not a very big style. In fact, really a very, very small style. Yeah. And so then just, oh, I'm so excited. I met the guy. Oh, my God. I met him actually on day one. I didn't know it was him. And, well, I, saw, I saw that in the first episode. He was, he was saying, oh, yeah. And uh, I saw this incense shop boxing, but that's not really what I'm looking for. And I, I watched it and I thought, I swear I've heard Pat McCarthy say something about incense shop boxing before. Uh, he must like, go back to it. And then, and then in the last episode, he, he goes back to it. And I thought, oh, thank God for I'm that. I'm not surprised if he's going to produce a movie in the future. He's so, he's so oh, yeah, he has so to, talented think, yeah. with uh, you know, setting up a script. and, and then, yeah. you, know, you, have, you have the outcome in mind, and you work backwards uh, from there to make, your, to make your movie, so to speak. Anyway, yeah, Jesse Ankem, lovely guy, known well, known his parents. And by the way, his, his younger brother is a, an up-and-coming... I should say up and coming. He's already here. I mean, he's I fighting in a couple of weeks, right? I think. I think yeah, I think is it now is it a Bellator match he's in or Yeah, yeah. Bellator. That's they're owned by the UFC anyway as well. So I hope he makes his way back. You know, uh, uh, 
you know, to meet and talk to Oliver, he's such a gentle soul, you know, we are fierce Viking warrior at the same time, you know, and heartthrob for a lot of the girls as well, you know, and, and uh, you know, sometimes he takes fights on short notes, he had a great career, he didn't have much luck in the UFC, but, you know, I don't think, you know, what's the old, what's the old uh, expression, there's no cowards in foxhole, you know, I mean, the guy does the work, uh, and he's, you know, he's come up against guys with big records and stuff like that yeah. happily accepts the fights and so so i'm just you know i'm behind him 100 in his corner i hope he does well and um i'm most certainly going to be watching that fight coming up yeah yeah for sure i mean this this might be out after after that fight i think it's something like, isn't it the 21st of february or something like that i think okay that sounds all right. yeah yeah i'll be i'll be watching for sure yeah uh, go, go, going back to when we were talking about Jesse and the the um, the incense shop boxing, one of the things we've spoken about on the podcast recently is is Seisan or Hangetsu Kata. Yeah. And um, well, I, was, well, I was watching Jesse's episode and I thought that looks like Seisan, and then he goes, "Yeah, we found a, a cat called Seisan." So it's it's a fascinating cat for me because you see it everywhere, <laughs> and obviously you've included a version of it in in Koryuchinadi as well. You know, why, why do you think it's so? So, I mean, people don't, at least in shirt account, people overlook Hangetsu. When you know, I wasn't sure if our conversation would get around the cots or not. I, I, I knew it probably would be. I, you know, I, um, I gotta tell you, I have such a different take on kata, and uh, thankfully, it's become a little bit more accepted these days. And the joke in my organization is that, uh, uh, okay, so let me just, let me back up a little bit first, okay? So so anyway, I'm living in Japan and, uh, you know, I'm uh, very excited. I, you know, martial arts have been my whole life. And I mean, where else? <clears throat> I mean, I'm in Japan. I mean, I'm at the workplace of the samurais and this is it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happily living the rest of my life in Japan now, you know? And, uh, but, you know, in the mid-80s, I walked away from karate-style competition. I was very uh, dissatisfied with a lot of things, you know, a lot of things. But mostly it was the political uh, nepotism and, and the, uh, the, the commercial part of this industry that never sat well with me, you know. And uh, anyway, so I, uh, I didn't want to give it up altogether, uh, you know, and certainly, uh, you know, uh, in the early years in Japan, you know, when I when we started having children, I, I literally had no job, you know. So I kind of had to go back to the martial arts, the fighting part, and for money, you know. And um, and I uh, I'd always preferred function over form, so to speak. And uh, I was very dissatisfied, with, you know. You know, and in those days, you kind of had a I don't know, a kind of a built-in. Un, unquestioned moral responsibility to protect the reputations of the bastards, you know. And uh, yeah, I met a lot of guys, you know, chain smokers and drunks, you know, who, uh, you know, I think, like, this guy's a martial art master. Like, how did that happen? And you know, here's the thing. So when I talk about these guys, I, I, I'm not, I don't mean, I'm not trying to disrespect anybody. No, no. I'm just like I was saying. You know, after a while, I used to get hit so hard. Oh, what does McCarthy think he is now? You know, like, he knows everything. You know, I, I said, you know, I, that was not the point I was trying to make. 
the point that I was trying to make was, look, 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 look. Obviously, the guy's got a big dojo or lots of students or his name has been imprinted in history. There's absolutely nothing anybody can do about that. That's a fact. And, and he might be a great guy and a, a wonderful husband or a respectful, inspirational father and leader in his community. And, and I'm telling you, from a functional martial art point of view, the guy's terrible. He, he, he's incompetent from was my point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would sit and listen to their, you know, uh, uh, the application of this technique is like this, and, and, and you know, it would always be the guy throwing a reverse punch, you know, a yakuzuki or yeah. weights. You know, and I go, I would say, it just, it just, it doesn't happen. You got to remember now, this is, this is in the 1980s, okay? Yeah. I'm not talking about last week. I'm talking about this in the 1980s, early 1990s, around there. I, you know, when I was conducting this type of research, looking outside the box, as well, I was dissatisfied with the status quo. And 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 when I started doing stuff like that, oh man, I would, like I was criticized by everybody. You know, when I I, I uh, in 1993 I got a job. I went to. I was invited to Australia. Oh, so sorry. The very first seminar I ever taught as a you know kind of a professional. Uh, uh, that led me on this uh, pathway right now was Terry O'Neill. Terry O'Neill oh, okay. contacted me in 1993 and wanted to bring me to uh, a teach seminar in uh, England, which I did. And that's a, that's a whole other story. We, we could just do a movie on that. That was fantastic. <laughs> but no, it was Terry O'Neill opened the door for me, you know. And um, so anyway, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking I'm... Um, uh, you know, it's it's the 19... Uh, now now it's in the 1990s, I get this job uh, offer in Australia. I'm excited to tell my wife, hey, here's a chance to get out of Japan, and, and we're going to go to Australia, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, and that's another story. That's a great story. But the, the interesting part is, so we finally immigrated there in uh, June, uh, 10th of June, 1995. And, you know, we're very busy getting set up and very excited about a new... Culture and new lifestyle, and getting our children into schools, and got to remember, I mean, the children grew up in Japan, so Japanese was the first language, you know. So you know, they were speaking uh, uh, English with a Japanese accent, and, and then of course trying to filter that through the Australian. Accent. Just it was just a lot of fun. But then something happened uh, in the following year that changed everything. We went online, and uh, the internet happened. <laughs> I, re- I still remember those dial-up computers, the squelch, and something like an old car trying to get started, you know. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and there, was a, there was a group, there was a, a, a gentleman from the United States named Howard High. Hi, Howard. And uh, he was the pioneer of a group called uh, Cyber Dojo. And it was kind of a bulletin board style uh, discussion group yeah. where we back and forth, you know, and... and uh, and uh, you said, you know, I said, I've never done this before. Like, what do you do? But, oh, yeah, like, like lots of people from around the world can get together and talk about anything they want. And, but, you know, make sure when you get on that you uh, that you uh, you introduce yourself so everybody knows what you are. And I'm like, yeah, great. You know, so like like with a whole, you know, couple of weeks uh, experience in cyberspace, I I go and I introduce myself. And I, now I, I neglected to do the due diligence, which, the, you know, if I'm, gonna, if I'm invited over to a new list these days, so rather than put my foot right in my mouth, which I'm very good at, by the way, I, uh, I'll take the time to read, you know, through a bunch of threads to find out, you know, what's the, what's the temperature here? Yeah. You know, what's going on? Who's who? You know, uh, who's uh, regarded as this guy knows what he's talking about? This guy. 
you know, and they're not questions like, you know, why do you tie your belt this way, you know? And so, and I neglected to do all of that. And, uh, and I, I just assumed everybody was like me, you know, uh, uh, you know, very passionate about this and quite experienced. So, so I introduced myself uh, in those days, Patrick McCarthy, uh, uh, Kyoshi, seventh Don, uh, former champion, uh, uh, translated la 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 la, and uh, you know, like this long list of accolades and stuff like that. I go, okay, I think everybody's gonna know who I am now. I can't wait to sit back on and answer questions for people really, you know, I'm really dying to, you know, lend some influence to other like minded people who are going down the same path. Can't wait to do that. Sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. And the first thing I get was, who the hell do you think you are? Boy, oh my God, did I say something wrong? What happened? It was like, this guy, you guys were, like, yeah, the guy's like a green belt and he's like, my teacher, my teacher is an expert. He's a showdown. He never heard of you before. Boy, and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> the next 10 posts, I'm apologizing for being me and, you know, all that type of stuff. And, <laughs> I'm gonna give the guy contact me because offline. He goes, "Don't worry, the guy's like an orange belt. Just don't worry about it, okay?" And I'm like, "Yeah, well, you know, but he, the guy's maybe an orange belt, but he's really passionate about something that he wants to know about. I'm happy to help that thing." Anyway, so whoa, that that one that became a war over like a, it was like a war zone for me, you know. After a while, we found out those those were the days, you know, before we knew how to trace an email or read a footer. And yeah. There was a little guy. I had some detractors over there with like. 15 or 20 pseudonyms. <laughs> Everybody was attacking me at one time. It was really only one guy, so to speak, you know. But the joke, the joke that I was gonna allude to earlier was that when I was saying, you know, two-person drills and you know, uh, the only way with which to better understand functionality is is to take whatever act of physical violence it is, uh, replicate it in a two-person scenario-driven practice, uh, and uh, and you know, use passive resistance so they don't kill each other to find your familiarity. And then you can gradually to exponentially invest it with aggressive resistance, so much so that at the end, it doesn't matter what goes wrong, you've been on every avenue of, uh, uh, of, uh, of practice here, so you'll have a response for yeah. any problems under this. But, and you know, I, oh my, that's not karate and, uh, and oh, I, you know, I was attacked. I thought somebody was giving out prizes for, or who no, I, I mean it. I, I stole a great quote from the Iron Maiden there in your country. You know, they say they were after me so long that I, if, if McCarthy could walk on water, it's just because the bastard can't swim. You know, I was, I was just getting hit by everybody. Now here's the joke, okay? For those of my friends who've been around as long as I am, those same guys who so vehemently uh, attacked me and criticized me for doing what I just, you know, what I do, what I've introduced, are now being congratulated for teaching the same thing. <laughs> you know, it's funny how all roads kind of burn together. To, yeah. You know, these kind of two-person drills were joked enough. There's no throws in karate, for God's sakes. Well, you know, and, and now it's like, you know, they're all going, uh, you know, this, and, and when you, and I don't know why, you know, I, I those some of those guys are still around. They're still active. McCarthy doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh, he's invented. Oh, McCarthy invented karate. That's what he knows everything. And you know, the nice part about the internet is things are time coded. Mm. Well, I can I, I always invite my detractors. Oh, look, okay, you know, just just because you don't agree with me, that's fine. I, I respect anybody's opinion, uh, even if it's not the same as mine. Everyone's got a everyone's got a right to say what they want. I, I, you know, it's not my business. But I said for me. 
I, and my background, it, it's barely, it's clearly evident. That type of training is dysfunctional. And, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, a lot of these masters that I met were not, like I say, nice guys. I just used to have to preface it after a while. Hi, Patrick McCarthy here. Uh, before I get started, uh, let me say these are really not so much my own thoughts as there are a long list of other cultural anthropologists. Let's start with uh, Ruth Benedict, Joseph Campbell, Edwin Reischauer, uh, uh, Eugene Harrell. I just make the list go down. And I say, look, I'm going to talk about Japanese culture. For those of you who don't know me, you might think I'm, I'm bashing the Japanese, but I'm not. I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm synthesizing the work of dozens of other cultural anthropologists but better understand that which brings us together. Because here's what happens in modern times, is, is people stumble over contemporary assumptions, assuming that this is the way it is today, that's the way it was then. And that's not the way it was then. In fact, you know, for the folks who don't get wrapped up in better understanding the, the historical, uh, uh, philosophical, and tactical uh, uh, evolution and culture from which this tradition comes, they can't understand. Uh, you know, if they see something today, they say that's always the way it's been. There. And you know, maybe from a, a from a, a principle point of view, uh, the, the mechanics and the principles that support the transfer of kinetic energy, uh, they never change, they're always going to be the same, uh, that it wasn't well understood by those people who would, who are, who came up in a conformance-based culture. They're just passing along stuff uh, that they learned without ever testing its uh, veracity. So I would say I, I would open a lecture maybe with something like this, uh, uh, look at, uh, um, and I learned this from Don Dreger, by the way, you know, uh, I used to be part of this group back in the 70s. And, and I learned this, that, uh, you know, the, the, the Budo, of which karate is a part, um, yeah. is, uh, is a microcosm of the culture from which it comes. It's a miniature representation of the people, the customs, the rituals, the language, and so on. So, uh, you know, uh, it's entirely possible to learn. The more you learn about the art, the more you learn about the culture. The more you learn about the culture, the more you learn about the art. And you can become as much a product of the art as the art becomes a product of you, depending on which path you go down. That's a, that's, a, that's a fascinating thing. So, so anyway, just jump ahead now 20 years with, you know, a decade in Japan, and, and I'm, you know, I'm very passionate about the history and anthropology of our tradition, you know. So I, it was very simple. I thought, okay, modern Japanese culture is a, uh, um, occurred throughout a thousand years of male-dominated, homogeneous, uh, extremely discriminatory culture of conformity wrapped up in a, in a uh, Confucian-based mindset. And the first planet of Confucianism is to be allowed piety or ancestor worship, you know, and, 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 uh, and, you know, that's the point being that, uh, you can't question authority, you know, uh, and remember the term send say, I mean, some of those can be for you, a birthday before you, you know, and so if you were a junior and you've seen it, you can't really question that person, uh, because who are you to do that inside a conformance based culture? Yeah. And one would think, yeah, well, you know, yeah, but I just, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing something else. Uh, yeah. You know, something that's someone from the West talking about something from the East and, you know, never the twain shall meet type of thing. You, 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 you can't do that in conformance-based culture. And, 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 and there's somebody who said, well, I wouldn't do it. And they say, you know, there's a mechanism that's, that's affixed to this tradition in Japan uh, that, that prevents you from doing that. Oh, what's that? 
Oh, thanks for asking. You know, it was, it's called the senpai kohai system, the senior and the junior. Through imitative behavior and the trickle-down effect, there's this, uh, this uh, mindset that's perpetuated. And unless, unless you know how to work around that or work within it, Japanese culture will not allow you. I can't just imagine somebody walking up in Japan. Uh, you guys are JK, or short again, right? But, but I can just imagine back in the old Hotin, uh, JK Homogojo up in, up in uh, uptown in Tokyo, walking in, the, walking in the doors, I don't know, a brown belt or a knee down, and, and seeing Nakayama going, Hey, Nak, how you doing? Hey, why are you doing that? Uh, you know, you'd, have, you'd have never made it out of the type of thing, you know? Yeah. And so today, our world is so different, where a trend perhaps, perhaps, uh, initiated by Bruce Lee, where looking outside your tradition to find something functional until you find what works best for you. As I said, you know, inside one against one, empty-handed self-defense, because I'm not going to talk about weapons. I don't want to talk about the, the melee, you know, gang fighting and stuff like that. No, no. You're going to get the shit beaten out of your kill. I mean, that's as simple as that. Yeah. And and I, and I just you know I have a you know I've taught everywhere I work with military law enforcement correction facilities you know, bodyguards all that type of stuff. One of my one of my senior students is a, a, for example is Avi Nardia and Avi you know, one of the most famous anti-terrorist trainers in the world you know and you know and we I'm, I just talked to him yesterday for example you know and, and we're still in very very tight contact and you know I work for him in Israel with the Shabak Imams all those guys I mean I know I, I know what time it is and 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 I see footage all the time of, you know, just some guy, you know, he's not a, he's not a, he's a Salat style or Armistimak. No, he's just a guy pissed off with a big butcher knife in his hand. And he's just running out, you know, with the, the proverbial ice pick style attack. And guess what he's doing? He's killing everybody, you know, until he gets shot. Or, I mean, look at the instance you had uh, on the bridge there. In, in yeah, yeah. We have the same thing. I mean, and the internet is filled with it. And nothing toxic dot com, not the, Children don't go there. I mean, I mean it's terrible, the, the things. And I'm thinking, how is, how is a high block or something? Here's a fascinating two-person drill uh, we do. And, you know, I'm going to tell you, you know, the type of night. And I, you know, I, Remy Prices was my, you know, was my stick instructor. Uh, uh, I, uh, I, I dated a girl from Salat back in when I literally as a young man. I mean, I, I was very passionate about all kinds of different styles, and I explored the value of them. I think they're great, but it wasn't until I started bouncing. Bouncing is a bad word. Security. I was a security specialist. Was, stick with bouncing. Is this? <laughs> it bounces up these water holes back in Toronto, but you know the Nobile Hotel, the pump, the running dump, and all these places. Uh, you know, I, it wasn't until I met a guy named Jimmy Cunningham. Jimmy Tedesaba. He did 10 years for a manslaughter. And it was a long story. I won't bore you the details. He actually, you know, somebody raped his wife and then he killed that raped his wife. So, you know, so the guy, I, I no sympathy there. He did what he, the guy got what he deserved type of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, inside prison, and Jimmy was a, a great boxer in those days. But in, in prison, he learned how to use a shank, you know, and... Uh, and I remember he was the guy who hired me the first time at the Nobita Hotel back in the day in Toronto. And, uh, you know, I, I used to train with him every week. And it was, you know, like, here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's how you sucker punch the guy, and, and here's how you jab him with a knife, and here's how you make a shank with a, you know, with a, with a toothbrush. And, you know, 
And I'll tell you, I, I saw that to this day, I've never seen knife fighting anything any way they use like they like they use in prison. And anyway, so so you know, from an early age, I was very passionate about uh, what is functional and what is dysfunctional. So mm -hmm. just going back to make the point here, and I'm famous for jumping all over, but I'll I will make the points of these is when I met these guys in the conformist-based culture who were you know representing generations of this style or that style. It was always against a compliant, pliable guy throwing a reverse punch. Yeah. You know, the block was thrown, and then 50 things were done. And some of these guys were very athletic, so you saw some. You 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 know, you were so caught up in the wow, look how look at that kick. You know, come on, the average guy, the the karate nerd, you can't do anything like that. They they look, they go, they just go, my God. Did you see how? You know, and they're so caught up in the awe of his physical prowess, they're missing the the heavenly glory. You know, the kid that A was expecting the reverse punch, he actually asked for it, and he did some highly dysfunctional technique to receive the attack, and then went on and showed off his great technique and the takedown yeah. and so on. And went, well, wow, isn't that fantastic? Yeah, it was like I went to an Aikido uh, uh, demonstration one time down at the Budokan. It's a, annual thing lots of people come together for demonstrations anyway and by the way i i, I you know I, I highly respect what Rui Shibamori did with you know scarcity leaving control and balance to form a tradition i get i get all that okay anyway got like 20 guys attacking this guy and the guy's darting back and forth and flipping him over and they're doing they're flying through the air and then in the end he's got like one finger holding like 10 guys down and the girl beside me, Japanese, she goes, What? So good, man. And I went, You know, she's going, Oh my God, isn't that fantastic? Wasn't he great? And I went, What, you mean the attackers? No, the defender. I went, Yeah, but you know, one of those guys would maybe attack them a different way, but I'm ready for that, you know? And oh, what do you know? You know nothing about it. I know one thing I know that inside physical violence, uh, the only thing that you can be predictable is that it's going to be terribly brutal and very violent. And uh, and I say, if you're using these scenario-driven uh, practices to replicate the uh, scenario, then you also have to adopt the behavior that uh, supports it. You know, and uh, you know, pardon my French, but you know, when you you know uh, when, when when there's an attack going on, let's say with a woman, for example, the guy's not going, oh, excuse me, may I rape you? You know, I mean, it's, it's violently brutal in many cases. Uh, and, and that's the, from the sublime to the mundane. I mean, it could be something as simple as a date rape, you know, where, oops, the date went wrong. And, and you know, but the end result was the same. As It didn't matter if the guy broke into the house and attacked the woman. Uh, the end result was the same. And how do you defend against that? And as I said back in the beginning was, a scenario-driven two-person practice is the way with which to do it. How else are you able to better resolve one of these? Okay, here's the thing. Yes, I practice this style of practice. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes, we're one of, oh, that's fantastic. But can I ask you a question? Yes, what's that? Like, like, like what would you do if a guy attacked you from, like, behind or pounced on you or, or, or in your attempt to defend yourself, irrespective of what the circumstances are, you lost your balance, or the guy threw you down the ground, or, uh, or you were, uh, you know, uh, five stone, you were like two. Uh, I mean, all of these variables, what are you going to do? We're not allowed to do that in my style. Or, you know, the referee would break you up or something. You know, 
So the, the, the variables, you know, I say, you know, kinetic energy travels according to certain laws and principles. And, you know, you can either flex an armor or extend it or pronate or supernate it, you know. And these are all just biological mechanics that happen, you know. And uh, when, once you understand it, it's, it's, you know, it's really not, it's not rocket science, you know. But to put it all to work, uh, against a headlock of bear hug or all, all hell breaking loose in the moment, uh, that's one thing. But, and that might work us, you know, like I, I'm 220 pounds, uh, six foot one, uh, you know, 30 years old at the peak of physical prowess. Come on, attack me, I'm ready for you. You know, there's that. And then there's everybody else. You know, I always love a pedagogical line of learning. You know, uh, let's say the line represents 100%. There's over on the far side, there's always the alpha learners, you know. You know, you know who they are. I'm sure that you got them in your dojo as well. They're the guys who show up out of the middle of nowhere, and in and, and in two seconds they're doing techniques better than you. Or yeah. my God, this guy. you know. And then uh, and then uh, the to the opposite of that uh, spectrum is you've got the you know the better learners or the God love them. I mean, you know, they're the lovely people and and they train all the time, but they just they, they're just no good. They're just, physically, they're they're no they're incompetent. You know. And there's there's lots of words where we can describe where oh well, you know they 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 train every week and they're lovely sure they're they're lovely people I have no problem at all and you know when we go to visit about the funeral homes that they were lovely people you know I I don't have a problem with that I'm just saying they make they help make up the spectrum of people who practice this tradition and then in the middle you got this so-called majority and through the law of reciprocity you know they kind of get back what they put in so to speak you know and. And so the variables there in these so-called acts of physical violence, which are habitual by human nature, is what are the variables? Well, they would be gender. And I said, oh, you're discriminating again. Oh, yes, yes. I said, I'm not discriminating. I'm just simply telling you a fact that, that men and women don't learn the same way. Children don't get it the same as adults. Challenged learners don't get it the same as alpha athletes. You know? And so from a pedagogical point of view, and if you're an instructor, you have to know what this, understand this process. Not everybody gets the same package. And if you're a small uh, person, you're going to respond differently than a big, strong, powerful person. Or, or here he is, 30 years old, champion of the world, you know. And now here he is at 75 years old, you know, with uh, bad hips. And, you know, it's the same guy. The only thing that separates him is the 50 years, so to speak, you know. Mm -hmm. That person is going to be able to negotiate this after physical violence in the same way. And so so these variables are very rarely discussed by people who are on the learning curve. So, and, you know, when people enter into the fighting arts at different ages and different stages, it depends largely on who's responsible for educating them in the learning process that makes the difference. You know, for the longest time, I always had this problem. I love teaching open seminars. I've been doing it for, for, since 1993. And everybody always, oh, you know, that's not the way we do it in my style, or I wouldn't do that. I, I said, how, how can I get away? How can I, what can I do or say to help these like-minded people see perhaps what I see? How can I do it? So I, I came up with this thing one time. I said, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, you know, in those days, you know, we, the 90s were huge seminars. You know, 100, 150. You know, uh, for example, just in the UK, when I used to go through London, if I was having a weekend seminar, I might uh, be in one part of London, like Canning Town or something on Monday night, and I'd be over somewhere else on Tuesday. 
getting 50, 75 guys together on a weeknight and then get 150 people on different people on the weekend. You know, there's just so much passion in London and it's such a big population. But, you know, I, I was saying, how, how, I said, oh, I got it. Okay. So I get one guy and I said, you're going to be the guinea pig. And don't worry, nobody's going to hurt you. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going to blindfold you. And I'm going to select. I said, can I get a guy? What's up? Put your hands up. What's your style? Shitoru, Shotokan, Goju, Gyokushin. Uh, oh, look at a Tai Chi guy. Aikido, can't, whatever. Uh, these eight or ten guys are going to come up to you. And I'm going to have one maybe grab you by the throat. I'm going to put another in a joint lock. Or, or I'm going to do uh, maybe blood or air deprivation or balance displacement or joint manipulation, limb entanglement, something. Not with a lot of power and certainly not to hurt you, but I'm going to come back to you after and I'm going to ask you a question. Okay, no problem. So I blindfold the, the, the volunteer, as it were, and I'd, uh, then I rearrange all the, 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 the uh, order of the guys who are from the different styles. And I say, don't say anything. Don't, don't go up and say, I'm from Gino Roo. You know, just go, go up and do what, you know, I, uh, okay, the next guy's going to, you know, choke you. This guy's going to put you in a bear hug. This guy's going to do a rear naked choke. This guy's going to do a, a This guy's going to. Uh, you know, be careful because you're going to go down. I was going to take it down slowly, you know. Anyway, I, 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 yeah, I'm fine. Don't worry. I'm Superman. Okay, yeah, good, good, good. And then, and then I sit all those guys down, and then I take the blindfold off a guy, and I'd look at him, and I'd say, are you ready? He goes, yes, I'm ready. I'd say, what style hit you first? What? Yeah, what style hit you first? Or, oh, uh, forget that. What style kicked you or choked you or something like that? And, you know, I, I never had anybody was able to answer the question, you know. Oh, God, I never saw them. Exactly, you didn't see them, you know. So I, I come up with this idea. You know, I'm going to learn to talk about with things and application practices in ways that is common to everybody. Yeah. And, you know, I can't say, you know, all oh, using English, because then a guy who, just say, didn't speak English couldn't understand me. Or if a guy was Japanese, I, I mean, I could say it in Japanese, and I speak Japanese. And, I said, I gotta come up better. I said, and I got it. And I remember reading the thing with Isaac Newton. I go, that's why I like it. And he said, you know, leverage, you know, who's who said it best? Give me a place to stand and a fulcrum and I'll move the world. I said, well, that's Archimedes. And so, you know, I, I said, what I need is right in front of me. And it's just applied science. It's just math, you know, like like let me describe what I'm doing from a mechanical point of view. Let me describe, because everything that you can do in empty-handed self-defense, and I'm not talking about, hey, you're looking at my girlfriend, I'm gonna slap your face. Yo, come on, try it. You know, that's a battle of, that's two, that's two live wires meeting yeah. each other in an alpha male uh, confrontational, mm -hmm. mutual confrontation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you got a bag of groceries in your hand, you get into your car, uh, or you're putting in the boot of your car and you get attacked from behind. You know, now that's not uh, mutual. You know, like I have now I have to defend myself. Because in the argument, there is a choice, and you don't have to do that, by the way. You know, and if you're gonna if you're gonna enter into, into this type of thing, you better hope then that you've done the math that because you know uh, there's gonna be a lot of brutality, someone's gonna get hurt, it could be you, you know. So if you haven't trained that way, keep your nose out of those type of things, you know. Uh, the other one is if somebody pounces on you or you go to the ground, you you got to be able to defend yourself. And I always used to laugh at the guys. We don't do that in my style. I said, well, you know, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Yeah. And if ground fighting or stand up or clinch or whatever happens to be is your weakest part, 
the, the bad guys are going to use that as their tactical advantage to take you out. That's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And so, so by virtue of acts of physical violence, which are habitual in nature to the human being, everything's possible. And so, so when I put this theory together back in the 80s, you know, I was working with guys who were, they were not traditional martial artists in the sense of the word. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were, as I said, they were, you know, stand up fighters who wrestled mm -hmm. or, or wrestlers who learned how to stand up fight. And, but at the same token, I thought, you know, I'm very passionate about swordsmanship as well. I was very lucky as a kid uh, in Japan. Uh, I'm almost uh, within the first couple of years, uh, I met a guy who uh, would become my teacher for many, many years. His name was Sugino Yoshio, and uh, he was a teacher of Katori Shinto Ryu. And so I became very passionate about that. And I'll tell you this, if you've never seen the first group, I recommend going to look at it because it's like swordsmanship on fire. You know, it's, uh, I mean, it's like the wildest thing you've ever seen. Really brutally wonderful, so to speak. Anyway, and, and lo and behold, I find out uh, six or eight months into, this, into my training uh, that uh, my teacher used to be the choreographer for some of these Akira Kurosawa Japanese samurai movies, you know, uh, who was the star was uh, Mifuni Toshiro. And so, whoa, I meet Toshiro and Mifuni in our dojo. You know, all these wonderful things going on. We really opened up uh, wonderful doors of opportunity to get to meet other martial artists and, and look at other types of martial arts. But between the, the cage fighters, uh, you know, the submission fighters, which is where I was, and the, uh, the swordsmanship, everything, everything was done in two-person drills. And, you know, I'm so crazy about this stuff. And, you know, I mean, I've been all over the world uh, to look and research uh, how it all happened. So I think create some type of clarity that, that clear up the ambiguity that tends to shroud is otherwise a very, very simple tradition to understand. And uh, so I, here's a great story. So I'm sitting at home one day and my wife said, there's a call. I pick up the phone and said, this, this friend of mine is an archaeologist. And he said, yeah. And he said, they just unearthed this uh, a dig site that they, they discovered back in the 40s or something like that, look, looking for something else. And we've just seen that on the on the wall, there's, the, there's a chiseled into this wall of uh, this uh, temple tomb is this uh, ancient fighting article. Oh, boom. I'm on a flight uh, uh, to Cairo. I, I'm, I'm, I'm down the river, the Nile River, on a boat. Uh, I'm on a camel ride over to this little town called El Media. And boom, there it is, the, the Beni Hassan Temple tombs. Uh, 5,000, this is like 3,000 years before the birth of Christ. And I look and I go, wow. I mean, everything you can imagine, joint lock, push point, takedowns, triangulation, throws, grappling, everything that you can imagine inside uh, physical brutality uh, without weapons is depicted on this wall that's 5,000 years old that looks like it's brand new, you know, kept underground, protected from the elements and so on. And that was kind of like the last straw for me. And, you know, of course, being being passionate about swordsmanship and loving function and then being swept up by the Katori Shinto Kool-Aid. I started, and I love Western swordsmanship as well, so I started applying these things I was doing in Western sword. And, you know, I, mean, I was a big, very passionate about, uh, you know, the historical elements surrounding even Western fighting arts. And I read everybody, Hans Kellhofer's, uh, you know, Arthur Dimantia, um, 
all of these uh, works from the Renaissance, and forget the swordsmanship part, I mean, just the empty-handed stuff there. And uh, I used to get my students back in those days, and I, you know, I, I was attending the martial art university in Japan as well uh, for the spring, uh, I guess you would call them a gashiku, we call them a gathering, like a, it was like a Budo week where we'd invite all the foreign uh, martial artists living in Japan to go to the martial art university uh, to sit down and take, you know, uh, do uh, studies and then uh, physical curriculum, so we karate, and it, it was all coming together. And I, and I'm, I'm thinking, what a what a wonderful opportunity it is here to to cross reference, cross train, uh, explore the value of what's going on in other stuff. So I used to get my students to take uh, uh, some of these old books. Hans Telhofer is the greatest one because he was a, a, a licensed to do the artwork for all these uh, fighting arts back in the, you know, the Renaissance. And I get uh, Kono Jigoro's uh, books from the late 18, 1895, uh, from Jiu-Jitsu and uh, uh, Irving and uh, Wei Nishi, people who had written these books at the turn of the century. And I would get my students to photocopy the pages and then write out the attacker so only the defender was left, and then write out the defender on another page, so only the attacker was left. And I have them try to catalog what the attacker was doing and what the defender was doing, and I have asked them to study that and cross-compare it with the wrestlers of 300 years ago, with the Shaolin Temple guys, uh, with the Jiu-Jitsu guys, and then, of course, we saw the same thing on the Benny San Temple. You know something? I don't care that it came from the Shaolin Temple anymore. It, it's a human being issue. And it doesn't matter if that was 500 years ago in the Shaolin Temple or yesterday in Canning Town. The human body works a certain way. And that was the last part of me saying I needed to find out what Japanese master handed this down. I didn't care anymore. And, but it was a wonderful journey down the uh, historical evolution of the, of the fighting arts because you come into contact with, with so many different elements of how it's done, how it's not done, and you know, there's this great, uh, uh, you know, the, the Chinese have this great, they call it the Chinese whispers. You know? I whisper you this, you whisper it to another person, and by the time it gets uh, to the 10th guy, it's like something different. And, uh, and you know, often I saw on the internet here a couple of years ago, uh, somebody had a cool thing where they, they lined up 10 guys and, <clears throat> and they're holding back to each other. So only the guy who was coordinated knew what was going to go on. And, and he, you know, he said, you know, do this, or do this, or do that, do this. And then he taps the guy on the shoulder, the other guy turns around, he, and he teaches it to this guy. And then he taps the other guy on the shoulder, he teaches it to another. And, and each each time it's taught to another guy, the guy can't remember everything, or he's about that or something, or, or whatever is this person, he adds that to that. And by the time he gets to the 10th person, it's, it's almost completely different, you know. And so, you know, you take that type of thing on board when you're doing this historical exploration, uh, you know, trying to work backwards in the logical uh, yeah. and in, in a lineage to find out an original source from which it came. It's 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 mind-boggling. It's, it's very difficult, and, yeah. and there are so many variables that you never you never see because everybody has a you know. I was I taught a seminar in Gojiru for a Goju group not so long ago. Oh yeah, no, we don't do seipai that way. We do it the other way. And I said, well, you know, it's funny. I said, who? Who, if anybody, would know how to do Seipai correctly? Miyagi Shojin, the pioneer of Gojiru, he would know. I said, okay, well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned it because in my early years in Okinawa, I went to visit, you know, Yagi Meitoko, Miyazato Eiichi, and all the guys who were the of 
Miyagi Chojin. And you know, over at the uh, at the Mabelcon, I was talking to it this way. And by the time I got to say, uh, you know, the JudoCon, oh no, no, it's not that way. And I would say, yeah, but I learned it from a guy who said he got it from Miyagi Chojin exactly this way. Yeah. Well, my teacher got it from Miyagi Chojin this way. And I was, so was he teaching everybody differently? Which is a good thing, by the way. Yeah. Uh, or are you know are you breaking the carbon copy? No, it shouldn't be done. And you, you guys are showing more. I mean. You know the historical evolution. Again, it was like, whoa, 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 whoa. yes, that's so you, you got your hand moved like two inches, and yeah. that was yeah. the difference from the cosmetic appearance. And so, end result is, if you look at the fighting arts rather from its cosmetic appearance, and we started this part of our conversation out by you asking me is about Saison. Mm -hmm. I, I went around the world here to give you the, the answer, but it's important to get that because because Saison in whatever whether it's say shun, hangetsu, sampen, or whatever you want to call it, uh, is merely a collection of uh, fighting templates that address uh, issues that are not completely obvious to people who are in the cosmetic appearance. And, and because of the way that the uh, you know kata evolved in modern times, and there and there's a whole there, there's a whole interview just just on the historical circumstances that created the problem that where we find the so-called formula for understanding it takes a backseat to the glitter and gloss of copper being used as a uh, a nationalistic uh, mechanism uh, to uh, serve the military during a period of uh, radical military uh, escalation in Japanese culture. You know, you, they, they got weapons, they got swords, they already got judo and judicial, they don't need any, but we, we never, we don't have any of this, you know, bare fist uh, percussive impact, so we'll just focus on that part only, and yeah. the rest of it, so to speak. You know, so by the time you look back at it now, you realize, God, you know, there, there's such an interesting thing. But you go to this issue where you say, okay, here's what I'm going to present to people as my theory. And just research, you know, very difficult to find it before that, spoken in these terms. Catalog, I'm sorry, identify first what you're up against. So not the guy with the knife come trying to kill you, because that's probably what's going to happen, you're going to get killed. And not the three guys waiting for you out in the parking lot, hiding behind the car, because you're probably going to go down with that, you know, it's as simple as that. But just a one-on-one -on -one scenario driven self-defense situation. Well, remember, like, seven times out of ten, none of this stuff's going to work for you, you know. But in the times it can, it's because you looked and understood that scenario, because it's been recreated for you through a pathway that leads to competency and functionality. You uh, say you've been counseling, you've been in a guard, a mountain, north and south, a headlock, a choker, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, just grab and pound it. You know, whatever the situation has been, it's either been percussive impact related or seizing. Percussive impacts very pretty straightforward. Pick your weapon. Is it fist, elbow, headbutt, knees, shin, heel? What is the instrument through which the kinetic energy is accelerating to hit a particular target? Your face, your 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 groin, you know, match the two together, as simple as that. That's your percussive impact. And some people can do it better than others. You, you, have to, you know how to make the body mechanics work at this weight to impact the person at that weight with all hell breaking loose to make it effective. 
And number two, if it's not percussive impact related, what else is it? Well, the guy says, oh, he could choke you or he could, uh, you know, he could uh, throw you on the ground or, you know, he could grab you from behind. Well, okay, last time I looked, that has to do with seizing. You know, whether I seize you with one hand or two with my arms, my teeth or my legs, the contraction uh, dynamics are mechanically identical. So and inside the seizing comes joint manipulation, limb entanglement, blood and air deprivation, balance displacement, fighting on the ground, escapes and counters, and all of the above wrapped together into one little package. So you either learn how to do it or don't talk that you you know what you're talking about. When I listen to the so-called experts, you know, there's no throws in karate. There's no, oh, we don't do that type of thing. You do do it from a self-defense point of view. You know, karate can be at least, at least five things. Now, it could be other things as well. But I, you know, trying to break things apart, work them down into the most simplistic uh, elements and describe them to folks so that they better understand through quantifying what it is they're studying. You're able to quantify what you're studying. It opens a whole new door to, for better understanding. It. It's as simple as that. And so obviously, you know, uh, karate can be a sport. And, and, and you know, and this uh, summer we're going to find out. In fact, this summer, uh, the karate, the Olympic Games are going to be held. The karate is going to be held at the Budokan, which is where judo was first uh Showcase in 1964 with that involved the art, you know. What happens after that's another story. But so yeah. karate can be a sport, and and all you need to know are what the rules and regulations are. It's not rocket science, and so by understanding what the rules and regulations are, it sets the groundwork for establishing uh, outcomes and assessment criteria with which to meet those outcomes. It's not rocket science. Uh, of course, uh, karate can also be an industry, and we know it's. I used to think it was one of the oldest industries in the world. A friend of mine who works. Uh, in the entertainment industry, reminded me of another industry that might be even older than that. Uh, you know, certainly karate can be a form of physical fitness. <laughs> Some smile. I'm not even going to go over there. You know, it can be form of, don't look at me for the physical fitness part, but I mean, you know, it, it certainly can be a form of uh, anaerobic, uh, not aerobic, but anaerobic uh, training in all of its wonders. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, as I say, so you have a sport, you've got an industry, uh, you know, you've got the, then there's the so-called, what we call the so-called lifestyle. Uh, I studied the fighting arts as a, as a lifestyle. That's great. You know, the so-called pathway, you know, and depending on how far down you get, uh, at one point or another, you're going to ultimately learn that the destination's not the goal, it's the journey. So you enjoy the journey of life, so to speak. Those things, from my point of view, are what we refer to as byproducts. The sport is a byproduct of the art. Mm-hmm. The lifestyle is a byproduct. The fitness is a byproduct. The industry is a byproduct. There's only one source of origin that cradles what brings us together, and that's self-protection. That's mm-hmm. the only one thing. That's the one thing that we have common everywhere in the world with the fighting arts is self-protection. So if someone's going to speak of, uh, about this uh, tradition uh, as an authority or an authoritative uh, 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 quantifying what brings us together. I hope the hell they know what they're talking about. Because I, I listen to a lot of people and they don't know what they're talking about. Or they know a little bit about a larger whole. Mm. Can't, it's kind of like it's kind of like Plato's cave allegory. You know, The guys living in a cave, they never really get outside it before, so they can't really see what's really going on. They can only see what's going on in their little part of the world. Yeah. 
And, and, and you know, there are no rules, there are no regulations, uh, you, know, you, you know, and it's not just enough to handle it in, in passive resistance. Uh, you've got to be able to handle when all hell breaks loose. So how then do you create uh, a mechanism through which to uh, come into contact with this, uh, learn it in a on a pathway that provides you a uh, safety. Uh, you know you're not going to get killed or harm. Uh, that way you're not going to go back to the dojo again. You know, or, and that inspires you to continue the learning curve. And so I came up with this idea. I said, let's do this two-person scenario-driven thing. Let's call it the habitual acts of physical violence because you know it doesn't matter as I said what part of the world you come from and what era that you're living in. If a person wraps their arm from behind around your throat, by virtue of the physiology of the blood and the, and, and, and the air and, and, the, and how it functions in your body, I'm going to deprive you of oxygen. Um, and, and, and if I do it, say, with my, my forearm from behind across your larynx, it's going to cause a lot of pain as you're going to sleep. Uh, or if I do a blood, a blood uh, deprivation, where I got a bicep on one carotid artery in my form or the other, it's not going to be necessarily as painful, but you're still going to go to sleep. So you either know how to escape from it when it's under a situation full, full of rest, uh, resistance, or you don't. And the, the end result is you don't you know what's going to happen. And so how then, and I'm just using, say, the remake of as one example of a larger whole, you can make the deduction based on the abstract yourself to follow the pathway, to, to, to join the breadcrumbs together. And so I say this, two-person driven scenario, you use passive resistance to learn. For the same reason, uh, I, I sometimes when I'm teaching, I'll say, are there any parents here? And I get, you know, a show of hands. I say, you know, um, you know when, you're, when your children were young, um, you know, they, at one point or another, they want to learn how to ride a bike. So, you know, did you go get them like a, a mountain bike, throw them on and shoot down the hill right away? Or did you, you, know, you get a little bicycle, a little tricycle with a little gear, you know, little training wheels. You've got a helmet and an elbow pads. And you use very empowering dialogue with your, oh, oh, oh Judy, you're doing so well. I know, Mom, you're doing You know, and you gradually uh, help your child because you don't want them to be harmed. Mm. And you want them to have a wonderful experience and to be competent uh, cyclists, really, you know. And so, so I say, let's employ the same thing with physical. Yeah, but, but it's physical violence. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. You, you can't just throw somebody to the dojo and whack them in the head and say, there you go. That's all it works. You, you, know, you know, you're not going to do much to cultivate uh, uh, students or uh, empower people with that type of mentality. You know, oh, we're the best. You've got to have a, you, you, from a pedagogical point of view, you got to, and, and, and like I said, a girl won't get the same as a guy. A child doesn't get the same as a guy an old person and so on. So, so not everybody gets the same process, but everybody gets the same habitual acts of physical violence and ultimately the same aggressive resistance to test the veracity of their function. It's as simple as that. And then in the end, you know, after, after you have uh, worked through all of the scenarios, and, there, and there's not thousands or hundreds of them, there, there's really just a few dozen. And, you know, when you start asking people, okay, look at you know, you study acts of physical violence in the way that I do from various cultures. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, they said the Scottish people like to headbutt you more than the Americans who like to sucker punch you. And all. you know, I mean, it may be true that in certain cultures, certain aspects of physical violence are more prevalent than, say, 
elsewhere. But you know, you just look at the forensics. I mean, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why the left side of the face was uh, had the most contusions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and and so it's okay. So, and I don't mean to say you need to reverse engineer from that. You, you just use the template. You know, and you're not surrendering to it. I have to call him Hanshio. No, no, you're surrendering to a process, not a person. A process, and I think this at all pathways. I don't care what styles you come from. Every functional pathway should be pretty much identical. It should uh, it should condition your body, cultivate your mind, and nurture your spirit. And the other the other staircase is one of functionality. Do your practices. Uh, uh, do. Do the way that you practice, does it take you on a pathway to functionality? It's either yes or no, I, you know. And the best way to do that is uh, is go roll with somebody who's a, who's a beginner or, or a guy with a, go, go, go grab some uh, purple belt jujitsu and, and uh, you know, you can be a fifth non and cry wherever you want and, and go see what happens there. And so what I'm saying is you need functionality. Yeah, been there. <laughs> and so anyway, so here, here's here's the, the end of the story is once this person drill uh, is uh, and it can look it can be a, it can be a short little you know boom, one impact I you know I protect myself I, I overhook head by bite his nose I choke and throw him down the ground or I was lucky and I just clapped him once he went to sleep you know and everything in between mm. so once that is culminated all you got to do then is is move away from the two person drill uh, ritualize the application process in a little miniature template and then by locking together or fusing together other templates into some geometrical configuration the end result produces something greater than the sum total of its individual parts and presto therein lies the so-called secret of content mm -hmm. and you know funny like i made the joke earlier i said so for me that's just i mean i'm still waiting for somebody to you know come up and and, and say he doesn't know what he's talking about and you know, there's a great there's a great thing about the about truth. Uh, they call it the Schopenhauer three stages of truth. You know, and when when you know when someone is challenging the status quo with them, say like a more you know way of doing the same thing, right away you're going to get people who ridicule you. You know, or they're going to oppose you. And if they, and if they, and if that doesn't work, then the third step is what we refer to as self evidency. Oh, I knew it before him. You know, I always laugh at these people today, these, you know, these clowns that are, you know, uh, criticizing the work, saying, oh, McCarthy thinks he knows everything. Go back and show me. And by the way, this is, I'm, I would invite you guys, because you guys talk to a lot of uh, uh, people uh, who are doing uh, this type of thing. Ask him if they know. We talked to this McCarthy character last week, you know, and he said, you know, uh, before he introduced us, how much you like the physical violence theory, which brought together the two-person drills and the end deduction was, you know, fusing them together to create content. He says, it wasn't our, does anybody do that? You know, because today I see uh, there's a Russian quote that I like particularly with regards to ambition that goes like this. We don't, uh, we don't, uh, we are not concerned about where he's going. It's his past that keeps on changing. And some, you know, uh, three things that people go around a lot for to create, you know, um, authoritative uh, positioning, you know, and one, and that's just, it's just to get, uh, you know, uh, a position that identifies them as, a, as a, an authority. And one is uh, uh, rank, 
And the other one is uh, lineage. Mm. And the other one is time in grave. Mm-hmm. So I'm a tenth dan. Uh, I studied with God, and I've been training since before the flood. You know, oh my God, well, you can't beat that. He's the highest rank. He's been in the training forever. And God says, you know, God saved him. And Jesus, Jesus showed him the way. So, and you know, the funny part about it, all three of the things have got nothing to do with functionality at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you could be the student of the best guy in the world, trained forever, and they mm-hmm. give you a outlandish rank, and you probably couldn't beat away a wet paper bag, you know. And so, the only thing that really does matter from a functional point of view and self defense oriented is what I'm talking about is a pathway that leads to functionality that's yeah. as that. and, and then and then you know so so basically you know, understand what i just said can be perceived as a uh, great threat to the uh, uh, the insecurities of someone who 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 who's entire being rests upon this lineage rank and climbing grade stuff you know what i mean mm-hmm. so what i'm just saying well, this is, it doesn't matter who you study with no matter how long you study for, give, give or take, you know, yeah, I mean, you're not going to become an expert in three hours, you know. Mm. And, uh, then that, that process, that's why I say all pathways lead to the same thing. You know, the Chinese expression, many pathways lead up the mountain, only one moon to be seen by those who achieve its summit. The fascinating part about functionality is, is you either know how to do it or you don't. And the instructors who believe that, you know, uh, one style suits all or, or one, one, uh, one method, you know, our children's class is at four o'clock, and they get the same thing as the adult class at seven o'clock, and, and the, the alpha athlete competitive class at nine o'clock. That's, that doesn't work. That just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And so you can imagine that I, you know, talking the way I do, and and, and knowing, you know, a little bit more about this than some other folks, why I would be uh, uh, the guy that the target that guys who can't think out of the box like to attack. Oh, McCarthy always thinks. No, I just. I, I, I work with so many different groups. I just love, uh, there's nothing that uh, inspires me more than hanging out with a bunch of people who are very passionate about uh, this stuff. And, and, and uh, you know, the so-called learning curves, you know, I mean, I'm doing this for more than 15 years. And it's funny, when I go to, when I go to teach the seminars, I'll, I'll, can I just, I'm in Germany. This is uh, quite, a, quite a few years ago. I'm in Germany. And uh, it's, a big, it's a big seminar. I'm down in Munich. And, and uh, Mostly, and by the way, when I started out, it was mostly with Shotokan groups. So I kind of leaned toward the groups and the Shotokan guys. And anyone there, and, and <clears throat> there's like, and, and there's a bunch of these guys with green, green crests on it. And I finished meet break, say, 10 o'clock in the morning for uh, tea and uh, and uh, toilet break and so on. And I come back and I notice like, oh, these guys with the green patches are gone. And I say to my uh, my host sponsor, what happened to the guys in the green? Oh. They, they they left and I'm like, why did they leave? He goes, very disappointed. And I'm like, disappointed. Why would they be disappointed? Yeah, they said they didn't want to go to a seminar for judo. They only want to go to karate. And I went, what do you mean? And he goes, he goes, you know, so the first two techniques I did in the morning, you know, uh, two person drill, engagement, protection, overhook, turn, and boom. Uh, and it's a technique out of uh, uh, you know, Hanyana. Uh, where you know it's if I'm seeing Augie throw the guy and then you do the you 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 choke him from behind right? and um, he goes that's judo he said he was very pissed off wanted his money back home. <laughs> I'll tell you what when I get back home 
I'm going to photocopy, but we still have fax, fax machines in those days. I'm going to photocopy a couple of pages out of each of Goshi's. Uh, it's his first book, but it was printed second. Uh, you know, the first line drawings were done by Holy yeah. Holy. But then after the 24 earthquake, you know, got reprinted and photographed. But I said, I'm going to, oh, Funagoshi doing these throws. And I mean, you know, Shotokan, Funagoshi throws. Would, would you believe that if that was the case? Oh, and anyway, a few months go by. He was, oh, I got an apology letter from the guy. He said, he said he was so sorry. He had no idea that that type of stuff existed in Shotokan Karate. I said, well, you know, I said, and that caused a little bit of friction, you know, because, uh, you know, the guy, the guy had like 20 guys left month their money back. and But they wanted the money back because they didn't understand. So mm. it was, you know, you kind of wanted to determine. I kicked open the floodgates of intelligence and drowned them in the depth of their own ignorance. And because they didn't understand that, they they put this, uh, these uh, blinders on and can't do it. Now, of course, I don't mention any names, this guy... He's right on board doing the same thing, you know. So that's very inspiring for me, very great gratifying as well. To see someone who thinks a certain way, but they're smart enough or they're willing enough allowed to open their uh, mind to take on board something new so that they're able to think a different way about the same thing. Because not everybody does the same thing the same way to achieve the same outcome. And mm-hmm. that and that and, and that's even for yourself. I mean, you might think about it one day, one way today, but then 50 years later, when you you know you, your hips not working or your you know your whatever the you know if you know old people who've been around for a long time, these how your hips, your knees, and yes, karate is very holistic, it's very good for you. <laughs> you think, wow, I, you know, I'm not I'm not able to do that kick anymore that way, so I, I might have to think about doing the same thing a different way. You know, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, geez, that was like that was only like on um, the first question for God's sakes about Saison. <laughs> so these these collect. Can you imagine the collection? <laughs> She's laughing. Jesus, don't ask him another question. We'll never get then I was gonna be interview thirty-seven. We're on the fourth question now. You know, three years later. <laughs> That's fine by me. <laughs> I can take a little. So, so, so let me just. Uh, uh, um, and again, this is a little bit of a protracted, a little bit. It's a protracted, but the thing is, in order to understand that which brings us together, you often have to think differently about it. You know, mm. as I say, uh, change is the only thing inevitable in life, in, in spite of how many, how often we try to, uh, uh, you know, uh, prevent it. It's, it's right till the very end. It's just what change is all about. You know, and tradition is not about, you know, uh, blindly following. There's, Jesse loves my quote. You know, that's a that, that's a very famous Basho, uh, Matsuo Basho quote, by the way. But we see it in Zen all the time. There's a question, and it's not about you know carrying the ashes in a, in a little box. Follow me. I've got the master in the box. You know, it's not about that. It, the tradition has always been about uh, continuing to keep the, uh, the 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 spark of that fire alive and continuing to seek out that which the master sought. Mm-hmm. How, how, how can I do something? How can I do the same thing better? You know, Machiavelli has a great quote, a great expression in his book, The Prince, you know, uh, and the Bible of lawyer. My son's a lawyer, by the way, so a liar. Did I say liar? liar. And, and, you know, Machiavelli's uh, always been, been a kind of a, a, an inspirational source for these guys. You know, the end justifies me and all that type of stuff. He always said this, uh, that whenever somebody has a new way of doing uh, 
something to get the same result in a more succinct way, Occam's razor, kiss, however you want to call it, is, is they're always going to be greeted uh, with people who are not going to accept that. You don't know the old ways better type of thing, you know. And my jiu-jitsu teacher was Professor Wally J, and he had a great quote. You know, he says, why fight World War III with World War I weapons? You know, you've you got to change. The fight's going to remain the same, the way that you address it. And so, yeah, and so um, that's why I say is, is it, it, if you look at the fighting arts from this uh, perspective, what happens is all the cosmetic BS starts to fall off. You know, you don't, you don't care that you didn't address the guy as... Your, your royal highness, you know, or or didn't matter that you wore a white gear or black gear or a yellow belt or brown belt or, you know, unless you were following a specific tradition. This is, a, you know, Hayashi Ha, Shoryu Karate, and Hayashi is the, the, the deity on the wall. He's passed away now, so you can never question his authority. No, 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 it's not that way. It's, and they move the thumb another, and that's the way it has to be. I get that. There's nothing wrong with that as well. But you can't include that with uh, uh, self-defense and functionality. No. And, you know, I, I used to make a joke uh, back in the day that, you know, and I, and I apologies up front, I, I, it was mostly with the Shotokan mindset. No, I, I would agree. You know, it was like the hammer fist, you know, it was like governor, you know, Lenny McLean, I hammer you with that right hand, you're going to stay hammered. And if you're Lenny McLean, that's right, you will stay hammered. Yeah. You got hit with him, man. That, that was a, you know, I remember him and Roy Shaw, man. I I, I met those guys, man. enormous monsters. And then there's everybody else. So yeah. if, you had a, you had a, if you if you if you weren't that type of person, you were never going to be able to do that type of thing. So how then does everybody else learn how to do it? And that's why I think that focus of attention on mechanics and principles is is such an important thing. But it, once again, it. it you know, if someone else does the legwork and and figures out, you know, what historical phenomena affected the growth and direction of it, uh, then it's then it's 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 more easily understood. If I if I said to you that during the late Qing period, you know, the man the Manchu dynasty fell apart. It was widespread corruption, uh, political nepotism. Can you imagine that political nepotism? <laughs> uh, and 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 and. It, robbery thieves and you know military falling apart and uh disasters in in uh, military conflict and then and, and later and of course you know 1914 the Qing empire came to uh, uh came to its knees boxers boxers in 19 uh, in 1900 you know, thousands of martial art guys killed by foreigners uh shut up in, in in beijing okay another story but the point being this is can you imagine up until that time in china when you're, you're, when you're better trying to understand the historical uh, 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 ambiguities of our tradition, somebody says to you this, you know, it wasn't that way back then. And can you imagine some of these guys from the militia banding together to make little gangs of bandits, if you will, and marauding through the countryside, coming into a village and, and either just really taking over the village themselves or, 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 or sending a scout up front and saying, hey, there's these bandits are roaming through the mountains. They may be coming here. Do you have do you have protection? Oh no, we don't. I know a group of people who can protect you, and it only costs a small amount of money. And maybe if they disagree to it, they just come and rob them anyway, you know. Or or coming into the center of town from 
putting on demonstrations in that era. And the demonstrations would be, you know, in the city, in the, in the village center, and they would uh, gather throngs of people watching them do, you know, weapons exercises or chopping, chopping vegetables and fruits off of a, the bare skin body of a person with a, a live blade or laying on boards of nails or walking on broken glass or chopping blocks of ice or, or chopping uh, ceramic uh, jars and, and, and or putting spear points in their throat and bending the shaft down. Can you imagine in the 18, late, mid to late 1800s, kids in the village looking at this? Like I told you, I saw my first martial arts in September of 1964, and I was dumbfounded. I was like, wow, look at that. And that's that's in this sorry, this century. <laughs> you know, it's not that long ago from my yeah. Can you imagine another 100 years before? And in such an isolated, hermetically sealed culture like China, mm-hmm. where these guys get together and put on this show, geez, the people would go, my God. You people are superhuman beings. How do you get to be like that? Oh, you would have to study our style. And for a few coins, you know, because people used to throw coins up on the stage in those days, you know. And uh, the more demonstrations you had, the more coins you got. And, you know, maybe the somebody of wealth and business said, would you teach my son? Yes, we'd love to teach your son, you know. Well, it'll cost a silver coin every month or or. 10 copper coins or one gold, whatever happened to be. So can you imagine the more coins you were getting, the more customers you were getting, the more coin you were putting in your pocket. And most of these, 90% of these guys who were learning were incompetent. But they had their, their families had money and the militia, these military, they needed to survive as well. So here's what I'm going to say to you. Can you imagine at one point or another, somebody putting together, hey, listen, okay, we don't have any more things to show these people. Oh, you soon knows where I'm going with it, don't you? So I, you know, so okay, we're gonna go to this next village, and you know, you're gonna do the spear in the throat. You're gonna do the board of nails. We're gonna chop some watermelons. We're gonna break some ice. We're gonna break some uh, ceramics. Uh, we're gonna do some mock sparring, and and uh, you gotta put some of these moves together, you know, and make a, some exercises. You know, we'll call it the secret technique. And then, and and it's really secret, but you've got to learn it for a long time. And the answers will be intuitively obvious, and you will become a master right away. But to learn these secret slithers around the brown tree, you've got to pay another gold coin or something like that. And so some of these exercises became very famous, you know. And, and of course, there were, there were real legitimate guys, you know, uh, Hong He Gong, uh, Wang Fei Hong, guys who were really, you know, martial art heroes, <laughs> you don't think other people were exploiting the, the, the reputations of these people? So, so can you imagine this time, era, not so much money, difficult to make uh, a living, you know, and you're just a martial arts person, you're giving a demonstration, and you know, but you gave the same demonstration time and time again. People saw it. Oh, I, I've already seen it three times. So we got to keep innovating and making new things, right? So now I'm not going to mention any name. Wait, you. I won't. I won't say that. But I'm just going to say that. Can you imagine? I got a few exercises. I'm getting a few coins thrown on the stage, but then it's not enough. I need some more exercises. So guys, hey, let's make a few up. What? Yeah, let's create some more of these exercises. 
for demonstration purposes. Really? Yeah. Okay. So let's demonstrate three or four more. And we created a few more. And the guy goes, oh, well, oh, this is a secret card. It's created for this, it's done this, it's done this. And all of a sudden, people can come into the tradition. Walk in the steps of the warriors. Learn the fighting arts without really fighting. So this idea behind what we call kata or punser, hyung or chuans or, you know, uh, taolu, whatever you want, whatever culture, they all have different names, same thing. They all become, you know, these, I, I always love it when they say, yes, they're uh, mnemonic mechanisms uh, to serve to remind you how to do something else. Okay. Well, how about if you didn't have a contextual premise to link that to? Mm. How, how would you know? How would you know what it was against or what it was for? Yeah. Hence the need. So I say this. The real fighting art is not the kata. It's the two-person practice is what it is. And that the solo representation of the two-person drill linked together to create something greater than the sum total of its individual parts. That is the art form. So, you know, we talk about 3K fighting, by the way. And, you know, so it's, you know, it's kata, kumite, and kihon, right? Mm -hmm. and, you know, I say to people, I say, well, you know, uh, the kihon that you practice today, you know, jodan, agi, soto, geda, marat, oizukita. Do you know that those are not ancient practices? Do you realize that those were practices just developed in the 1920s. People don't know, oh, no, 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 this has been on for hundreds of years. Actually, it has not. And when you study the evolution of these, uh, this uh, haphazard fusion of Asian and, or Southeast Asian and Chinese arts uh, evolving in the Rukyu Kingdom, being introduced to the mainland of Japan in the 1920s. And you know, you got a long procession of people from around 1917 up until December of 1933, uh, who served to create the foundation upon which modern karate evolved. You got the guys like uh, Matayoshi Shinko, uh, uh, Motobu Choki, Gibbichinkan, Funagoshi Dikshin, Miyagi Chojin, Maburi Kema, Weichi Kambum, uh, Toyama Kankan, people like this coming up to the mainland of Japan and introducing their interpretations were so uh, moved by Japanese Buddha culture. You know that expression, Deru Kugi wa Utare. Or you can also say, Deru Kugi wa Utare. Kugi means, uh, kugi means male, and Kui means peg. And, and, and the expression which describes the nature of Japanese culture, its conformity, uh, and this mechanism on the senpai koi system is uh, the protruding nail ultimately gets pounded down, you see? And that's describing uh, these people in Japanese culture who, who don't want to abide by the status quo, you know, and the kudo question answers and so on. And so I figured this is this, is this once again, this out-of-box thinking mentality. And, and what I'm saying is the out-of-the-box thinking mentality, either you being one or you being part of a... Of a facility that embraces this uh, form of tradition in that you're not blindly following, but you are continuing to explore, uh, experiment, and research through empirical observation. It gives you the opportunity to be on a pathway that leads somewhere along the line to functionality. And one of the first exercises that were taught, especially just around the prior, prior to the turn of the century, uh, was this this exercise referred to in Chinese as 13 steps. The Chinese are infatuated with numerology where, mm. you know, 
If I say to you, uh, okay, I'm living in that apartment building over there uh, and I'm on the 13th floor, you go, what? Have you ever seen a 13th floor in an apartment building? They don't have it. Why? Because it's bad luck in Western culture. But, you know, in, in, in Asian culture, it's a different story. Numbers carry spiritual uh, 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 meaning. And, and, and so when we see this word Saison, and you know, you see the word Saison, guy starts with a punch in the block, and a punch in the block, turns around and does this. And, you know, if you look at a lot of those early templates that were being created, they're all kind of created along the same mechanism, you know. Mm. And then you go to Yong Chun, for example, you can see exercise in a certain way. And a lot of things, a lot of times people looking at it, they, they go to China looking for something, they can't find it, and they conclude or deduce that it's it's not there. And, and very often, it because it wasn't there. You know, a lot of a lot of these so-called Japanese karate uh, traditions evolved in Okinawa, completely separate, but not unconnected to the Chinese prototypes. Yeah. I mean, the Chinese community in Okinawa for a long time, and and uh, you know, there's a place here called Matsuyama Kon, which is a Chinese block, which is still there today. And uh, you know, it's, it's in the middle of what would then be the Chinese community, uh, where they were all Chinese people. And so the Chinese people on a park, especially on a weekend, you're going to have families and picnics and barbecues and people dancing and having fun and, and kicking a ball and practicing martial arts. And so uh, I wrote a paper many years ago about, actually actually published by Jesse, by the way, yeah, yeah. Uh, on Matching Mach a Park Theory. And I theorized that... You know, people, so I'm doing this kata here where it looks a certain way and, the, the you know, the, the guys who are his, uh, passionate about the history, they go to China looking for this kata. They can't find it. So they deduce that, oh, maybe the tradition was lost in the sands of antiquity. Well, you know, how about if it was never there in the first place? But if you look at some of the templates in some of the katas and you contrast those with templates in other styles, you can see similarities and, and in many cases identical techniques so you have to it's, i mean it's not a rock science i call it the duck theory you know if it quacks has feathers and flies it's got to be a duck you know so there's a connection there between something else but then if you spin it around and look at it from the other way what the hell is that move doing i and, and don't get me wrong i see that a lot of the monk guy guys are exploring what this could possibly mean oh, i think that's great Listen, when it comes to functionality, man, Gustav, Bloom, Maslow, uh, uh, Occam's Razor, Kiss, I love everything. If you can get it to work uh, and make it functional in a short period of time, doing it another way, let's do it. But for me, I was captured more by, say, that kata and how it worked. And so coming into contact with these authorities at the sources of origin uh, and, 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 and quite often with the most senior authorities uh, of their generation. Oh, that, that, that technique's a, a classic and we see it mostly in Southern China, but look at this. We saw it in Kalari Payat as well in Egypt and India. And we saw it over here in the, in the, in the Sabat and we saw it in the, in the uh, Yagyu Shinjangu Heihoku as well. You know, so we realized, oh my God, is it possible for different people in different parts of the world, in different cultures, faced with the same stimulus, physical violence, to arrive at a functional practice that is identical to somebody else at another time? Mm -hmm. And the answer is 
absolutely. Necessity is the mother of invention, man. And and it's because of this human body. So so the, the practices that I systematized, uh, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, I love a Japanese culture, by the way. And in spite of how I talk about it, I just love everything about Japanese culture. And especially the, the simplicity of Zen, the less is more. You know, I hear all you do is you do you know, the way a real fight happens, you know, you don't have time for any of that type of stuff, you know, you have something that's effective and brutal right away, and you have to encapsulate the behavior, the violent behavior that's associated with physical violence and the language and all that type of stuff. So, you know, often I give a seminar, people go, gee, the guy's crazy or something. I go, nah, I'm not crazy. I'm just telling you that, you know, you, you can't wake up one morning dead and say, oh, my, my jumping, spinning heel kick, I learned that one of this championship was no good inside a telephone booth or something. So, and hence the need for something that's well-rounded, functionally effective. And, and what that does is it brings together people who are like-minded. And, you know, people who are not, I mean, for the longest time, especially in England, I had a, a lot of people against me saying, there isn't any applications in Shotokan karate. They're just kicking and punching. And I kept saying, arguing, no, they're not. If it was just kicking and punching, why would you need the kata in the first place? Oh, and, and well, some of that mindset, uh, excuse me, some of that mindset uh, continues on to this day. Oh, absolutely, so, it does, yeah. Is people either stupid or or are they just naive, really? And uh, or they, you know, my joke was the Bunyan and Kruger. You know, I, my hey, says what's that Bunyan and Kruger? I said it was a study done by two social scientists who, who realized sometimes people are, you know. <laughs> sparing the joke on the sidelines it's they're kind of so stupid they don't know they're stupid type of thing you know and they, they go on to say things that are completely ridiculous and then all of a sudden they either learn that they were wrong which in 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 case that's fine if you're wrong it's, it's great it's even more uh fabulous if you go back and say that you know something uh, i didn't like what you said and you really pissed me off and i and i argued against you but you know something i found out you were right and i want to apologize for that and thank you for the inspiration because yeah. now i'm this much further down the roadway because of what happened and i go you know something thank you very much that's very nice and by the way that that's happened like twice in my life the other fifty thousand times i've never heard back from those guys you know oh McCarthy you think she knows everything everything and I look around now and I see all the people teaching two-person drills and, and, and exploration of this and doing that. I just say, you know, I'm happy. I'm happy that they're I'm happy that they're doing that. And I'm even more happy that this type of training has caught on. Because, you know, if you go to an MMA school or a, if you go to a BJJ school or something like that, or you go to a boxing club, or you go to a kickboxing club, or you go to a Muay Thai club, they don't talk about any of this stuff. Nobody talks about this because that's just what they do. Yeah. You know, functionality. You go to a judo club, you learn, uh, you know, you learn how to warm up and, 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 and get relaxed. You learn about balance displacement. You learn ukebe waza, how to protect yourself when you're thrown on the ground. And then, boom, you're in. It's Randor, man. You're, 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 it's a test of, uh, of skill. And it doesn't matter who you're up against. It's, uh, nobody cares about that. It's just, yeah, I'm going to throw you. And, and you're either able to do it or you're not. And, and you hope. That, you know, when you get thrown in your ass a few times, you don't go home crying, you know, I'm not going back there anymore, mom. That you just, that whoever is responsible for educating you makes it perfectly clear or apparent that that the, that the difficulty and the so-called failure, it is the lesson. That's the lesson. And that uh, the failure is going to reap way more rewards than the success. 
and the, the success is just another bench post. Uh, you know, it's marking uh, an achievement, and it's time not to dwell on it, but it's time to move on from there. So, okay, so there's a uh, three hours on one question. What's next? <laughs> that, that, that is that is a, a a lot to unpack, and it makes a hell of a lot of sense, especially when you when you relate it to, to to what you said about boxing and, and jujitsu and things like that. I agree with you 100%. You you don't get this kind of questioning because it's it's all about function. And when you I think when you compare like if we're talking about strictly Shotokan, you compare like a JKA syllabus to like a beginner's judo syllabus and you can see the difference. There is no functionality in that. You know, no offense to the JKA, but there's no functionality in those early grades really. But, you know, and, and of course, and, you know, I know I'm speaking to the converted, but I mean, I'm singing to the choir, as it were. But, you know, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, if you, you went to, say, JK, and by the way, you know, not all the JK is the same as well. I mean, especially oh, yeah, after, maybe, yeah. after the past of the Nakayama, you know, there's kind of mm. on and a lot of the great first generation leaders of the JK have passed away. But, you know, you go to one JK club, it usually reflects the personality of the guy who's leading the class, not mm. the JK, you know. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Everybody's, you know, changing the cosmetic, uh, 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 the, the cosmetic uh, uh, appearance of a, of a technique. Oh, it's not there, it's one inch over here type of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so say a guy from one style couldn't say, let's say that the, this guy is one acne rule and the other guy's from an acne two rule, okay? So we don't use any names to, you know, protect the understand. And uh, the guy says, oh, that's not the way we do it. And the guy says, well, that's not the way we do it. Well, that's, that's a good thing, really, because there should be all kinds of, of different ways of doing the same thing, you know. And, and that's the wonderful part about an art, you know, is, is uh, you know, if I, if I have a class and say I got, uh, I don't know, uh, 50 students and I say, okay, yeah, hey, hey, hey everybody, welcome to Pat's arts class, arts, art class today. And uh, 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 what you have before you is a palette and uh, all that sticky stuff on there is ink or pastel or watercolors, whatever, what, however you want to, whatever, pastels today, okay, there you go. And that's cyan and magenta and yellow and, 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 you know, if you mix this with that, you get a different contrast. And, and these are the little tiny brushes for making eyelashes. These are the big, huge brushes for making mountains. And, and uh, this is the scraper to get some texture. And, and the guy takes a hanky out of his back pocket. <laughs> oh, and that's the hanky to rub in and get a little bit of extra softness on the clouds, you know. And, and, uh, and this is the, uh, this is the uh, canvas. And you got the 45 minutes, go paint me a flower or something like that. And, you know, 45 minutes later, you come back and there's like 50 different flowers. And you go, well, why is there 50 different flowers? You all have the same paint, the same brushes, the same canvas. Uh, and that's because not everybody thinks the same way about a flower or a rose or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's a wonderful individuality for us to go. We're not meant to be doing the same thing the same way. If only just our own physicalness of that. We're not all the same. We're all different. And that needs to be reflected in the art that brings us together, if only for a functional uh, pathway. Yeah. Yeah, what, what, you've, what you've said there is, is, is maybe question a lot about Kata as well. Thank you. Think about what you said there. Yeah, yeah. And it's just just in terms of when you say exploring bunkai and and stuff like that is, you know, 
we're probably still wasting a lot of time on stuff that you really don't need. Hey, can I can I can I mention something to you? Uh, just because you just I just heard you say a word incorrectly, and I I wanted to I wanted to tell you something. So you know, when I was first in Japan, and I was very nervous about trying to speak a, another language, and and uh, so. Uh, Anyway, I, I uh, was on a train coming back from Tokyo. And like, like, come on, like, you know, I'm from the colonies, man, Canada, you know, and, and uh, you know, spent a long time in, in Australia. And, and good Canadian boys are brought up to, you know, respect uh, everybody, certainly our So that's it for part one. We hope you enjoyed it. Come back for part two, and we'll see you next time. Bye.